But today, we are going to say goodbye to the book of Exodus. All right, I need you to have a Bible in hand. I need you to have something you can turn back and forth with. Uh, because I, I'm, I'm, I want to connect us with this story in Exodus to understanding why we called it the gospel according to Moses. And so we're going to need to put one foot in Exodus and, and reach into the New Testament several times. So you're going to need to be able to look at this with me. Plus, it's going to help you remember better if you will do that. So let me, let me just do this first. Let me get us to the end of the book of Exodus here because we are fast forwarding through a piece of the end. And here's why. When we got to Exodus chapter 25, remember, God has called this people to himself and Moses has gone up on the mount to visit with God. And in chapter 25, God is going to reveal the tabernacle in great detail to Moses. So from chapter 25 all the way to chapter 31, we got the details of the tabernacle, what its construction would be like, what each furnishing piece would be uh, for And then we got to chapter 32, and there's this little interruption, this interruption of idolatry. And isn't that just typical, right? God has got great plans for his people that get interrupted by their idolatry. Well, that's still a script being realized today, isn't it? So from chapter 32 to chapter 34, we we studied this interaction with the people of God in the midst of their idolatry and building a golden calf. Uh, And then from chapter 35 all the way to chapter 39, the tabernacle is going to actually get constructed now. They're actually going to make and build and put in place the priesthood that's there. So you can fast forward all the way to the last chapter, Exodus chapter 40. And this is how the closing thoughts are summarized. In verse 1, says... The Lord spoke to Moses saying, on the first day of the first month, you shall erect the tabernacle of the tent of meeting. So finally, this tabernacle is going to get built. Fast forward down there to verse 9. Then you shall take the anointing oil and anoint the tabernacle and all that's in it and consecrate it, all its furniture, so that it shall may become holy. So God anoints this special place that he's created. Skip down to verse 16 says this Moses did according to all that the Lord commanded him so he did in the first month in the second year on the first day of the month the tabernacle was erected and then over in verse 33 he erected the court around the tabernacle and the altar and he set up the screen of the gate of the court so Moses finished the work. All right, so we've arrived at a point here, and I'm going to highlight why that's such a significant point today. The tabernacle is set up, this place where God is going to dwell among his people. All the instructions have been fulfilled now, and, and here God is going to show up. Look in verse 34, the last few verses of Exodus. Then the Lord covered the tent of meeting. Oh, the, I'm sorry, the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out until the day that it was taken up. 
For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. So this picture image, right? They pull up to this mountain. Remember, this mountain was a terrifying scene in many ways. And God would descend upon the mountain. And Moses would go up and interact with God in unique ways that nobody else got to. And then as they transfer, they're going to basically transfer the mountain into a portable kit. They're going to take the presence of God with them because God has enabled them to, to sort of create luggage, right? They can take this setting at the mountain and it can become their permanent setting now. The God who descended on the mountain is now going to descend upon this tabernacle and they're going to they're going to take God with them in a unique way. In a way like never before did the people of God have the presence of God among them. Right? This is where all of Exodus was seeking to take the people of God. God wanting to dwell amidst his people. And I think that's the great purpose of Exodus. But let me back us up to look at something Moses says in Exodus chapter 33. And in this is housed so much of why we labeled this study the gospel according to Moses. Because this book of Exodus, who for some reason people have misappropriated some ideas and installed them in Exodus and have turned Exodus into this epicenter for this thing called the law that we're all supposed to not like this thing called the law, the Ten Commandments and all that stuff. The gospel is dripping from the book of Exodus. God does not have two stories. There is one story from Genesis all the way to Revelation. It is the story of how God rescues wayward humanity. And Exodus is not a bad experiment. It's not God installing a bad idea that he really didn't want us to use anyway. It's none of that. It is the gospel revealed through Moses at Mount Sinai. Now look, look carefully with me. This is, this is a concentrated dose of what I think we should have been taking away from this study. Look in verse 12 of Exodus chapter 33. Moses' moment of intercession up on the mountain. It says, Moses said to the Lord, See, you, you say to me, bring up this people, but you've not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said... I know you by name, and you've also found favor in my sight. Well, now, therefore, if if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways, that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that, that this nation is your people. And he said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? Well, Lord, open yet our hearts and our minds once again to see your word, your ways, your revelation. 
Lord, you, you, in so many ways in our lives, we have way too small an image of you. And yet you have revealed yourself to us. And you revealed yourself to us again in these words. And so, Lord, enlarge our understanding of you. Let us have some serious takeaways that alter forever who we will be as we live our lives for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, look back in verse 12. I just want to take this passage apart for us a little bit. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring me... Bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, right? Great lessons from Moses. It is, a, it is a powerful and important thing that when you and I interact with God, that we spend quite a bit of that time reminding God about what he has said. I, I spend way too much time just coming up with fresh stuff from my own heart. <laughs> uh, my perspective on something. Moses gives us a lesson here, right? He is going to remind God about what he has said. The basis for Moses' understanding how to interact with God is based on what God has said. That is not a small point to be missed today. Because you and I can collect ideas from who knows where. My mom and them. People that I've been around. Some bad church teaching. Some book I read once. And suddenly I've got an idea about how to relate to God. But how about basing it on what God has said? He says, this is what you said, God. I know you by name. I know you by name. What does it mean for God to know a people by name? This, this is an extremely loaded, this is like uh, swallowing a concentrated pill. What we're about to do right now is an extremely concentrated pill. Because the concept of the God of all creation knowing anybody by name is much more than the fact that he just knows you exist. It's much more than the idea that he knows what you're going through right now. He knows the details of your life. He's got a library of information that, that you're included in it. Right, let me just give you a little bit of a feel for this and we could spend the whole time looking at passages that communicated this. Look, Jeremiah chapter 1. God speaks this way to Jeremiah when he says, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. This is what it means to be known by name by God. That God has been at work in you and whoever you are before you even existed. God is proactive. But the Bible, we say this over and over, this is what I mean by the Bible is God-centered. You'll hear us use that phrase a good bit. This is, what it, this is a God-centered revelation. Way too much of our theology is God-reactive. Is we do something that God reacts to. That makes us the initiators. That makes us the mover and shaker. And listen, once you install that in your theology, where you are the thing causing God to be who he is, you understand you become the dominant force in that. Do you, do you understand that? God is no longer the dominant force in that. You are. Because God doesn't do anything until you do your thing. And God can't be who he is until you make him be who he is. Do you understand that's upside down? So who's Jeremiah? Does, does Jeremiah make God anything? Well, it doesn't appear like it. 
I knew you before I formed you in the womb. Before there was any evidence that, Jeremiah, you even existed. Before there were molecules that had taken shape and you took some kind of form, I already knew you by name. And I had already consecrated you. Before you, me. Right, that's a God-centered equation. Before you, me, God says. I've already been moving on your behalf. Isaiah 43, verse 1, speaks of the nation of Israel. It says, but now, thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. See, this is what it means to be known by God by name. Right? So this is no small point of theology here. Because it taps into an area that all of us have some experience in. Fear not. Anybody here this morning got some fear issues going on in your life? Did you know that God intended for you to combat fear by knowing that God knows you by name? And that better mean a whole lot more to you than, well, I know he knows my name. I mean, he's God after all. It's more than that, isn't it? What God tells Israel is, this is why you can fear not. I've redeemed you. I've made you mine. I know you by name. You belong to me. You are mine. This is what Moses is praying when he stands before God and reminds him of this. 2 Timothy 2, verse 19. But... God's firm foundation stands. Don't you love stuff that's just strong, right? It ain't moving. No hurricanes or earthquakes or nothing are going to move this. Bearing this seal, the Lord knows those who are his. That foundation stands. You're not moving it. The world's not moving it. Your sickness isn't going to move it. Your bank account's not going to move it. The culture's not going to move it. John chapter 13, verse 18. I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. And so this sounds weird, but if you make yourself just like everybody else in the world, you're going to have a hard time understanding how to be at peace with God being at work in your life. What makes you different Is that God has made you his own. He has taken possession of your life. He is your owner. Your father. There's something near and dear and unique about who you are to him. So this is is much more than mere acknowledgement. mere, Mere familiarity. Like God is familiar with your surroundings and your setting. He knows what's going on in the world today. This is much more than that. This is an intentional posture and activity of God to be involved in our lives in particular ways based on his plan from before you and I existed. What I love about this truth is is it uproots our, our moody little insecure relationship that we have with God. Because there's too many times that we think God is gonna, about to behave based on what I've supplied him with permission to do in my life. 
by how faithful I have been, by how good I have been, by how sacrificial I have been, by how godly I have been. And of course, all of us know that, you know, God installs his great godliness at Mount Sinai. I remember this. And then within days, idolatry is blooming like mold in these people's lives. And it's no, no matter how hurrah I can get you to be this morning, you know, if you've been living for very long, it, it won't take too long before the mold of idolatry is going to show up in your life again. And in that day, if you are the mover and shaker for God, you're in serious trouble. Because you will lose all your confidence. You will lose all your expectation that God will be anything to you in that day. Because you think your little contribution is what turns God into your God. Are you seeing this with me? This is very important. That God chooses to be your God before you are even molecular and formed. Before you do anything, God has made a decision about how he's going to relate to you. That's pretty important. But it's all over the Bible. This is not, this is not unique. This is the gospel of Moses. Ephesians 1. Verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. When did God know you by name? (laughs) Before anything existed, God knew you by name. In him, verse 11 says, we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. This is what it means for God to know you by name. It means that God is at work in our lives Bringing to pass a purpose of his will that he has had for us from the foundations of the world. He didn't just think it up. He didn't just decide he'd do it when you started to behave a little better than you were behaving. God has had this in his heart to do long before you and I did anything to motivate him to do anything toward us. Listen, this is what Moses is praying. By the way, this should inform our prayers, right? You stand before God. Why should God do anything for you? Does he owe you? Only if he chooses to owe you. And in this regard, Moses calls upon God. God, you said, you did this, God. You said you knew us by name. So therefore, I'm going to ask for this and this and this because I understand that there is a favor on us because of what you have chosen to make us in your eyes. That's why you and I can ask things from God and that's why you and I have a hope in the future of our lives. This is why we can intercede, right? Go back to verse 12 now. You have said, I know you by name. And you have also found favor in my sight. 
what does that mean? Because this is the basis for Moses making his request. We have found favor in your sight. Well, this is the gospel of grace. Remember that word favor? Some of us grew up and you were early on in your Christian life. You, you learned this very simple definition for grace. Remember what it was? Grace is unmerited favor, right? That's what we understood grace to be. It is unmerited. It is unearned. It shows up in our lives for some other reason than I did something to make this transaction happen. It's unmerited. And it's what Moses is speaking of in the Old Testament, in the book of Exodus. He is reminding God of the gospel of grace. We have found favor in your sight. Right? Fast forward. Right, reach forward. If you've got your Bible, you can do this. If you've got one of those goofy devices, good luck. <clears throat> Ephesians chapter 1. Actually, Ephesians chapter 2 this time. This is how Paul explains the gospel of grace. And this is what Moses is aware of from his experience at Mount Sinai. He's already experienced quite a bit of this. Here's Paul's description. Chapter 2, verse 1. It says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. All right, this is the most accurate description of you that ever, has ever existed. This is not an, a, a description of nine out of ten people. This is not a description of, uh, you know, Several people, this is a description of all of humanity is trapped in these three verses. And so I'm going to walk through this little illustration here with you in just a second. I just want you to see the bits and pieces. This, this is the gospel of grace. Here's our starting condition described in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1 through 3. We, we are in a condition of death and, and theologically what's called depravity. It is an enslavement to sin. It is complete darkness. It's dead. It doesn't have a little bit of life, a murmur of a heartbeat. It's dead. It cooperates with the God of this world. It has its own agenda. So it has activity even though it's dead. It still has activity to it. And that activity is in allegiance with our own lusts and passions that are stirred by the God of this world. All right, so that's what's being taught in this passage. So when you gaze out at humanity, this is everybody. When God looks at humanity, this is everybody. But Moses is standing on the mountain and saying, God, but we have found <clears throat> favor in your 
sight. All right, so somebody help me for a second. What did God see in them? He saw Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. That's what he saw in them. Did, did he look at this group? Because Moses said, but, but we found favor. Un, unlike them. Who didn't. Well, quite honestly, that's true. But the basis of the favor is the real question, isn't it? Did this group that found favor, do they get to stand and say... They're really dead as opposed to us that are like somewhat dead. They're in cahoots with the devil and following the lust and passions of their flesh a lot more of the time than we are. Is, is this how this verse works? This verse puts everybody in the category that by nature, by the nature of your very existence, everybody in humanity is a child of the wrath of God. Does this group stand and say, you know, for us it's just going to be like, I don't know, a little bit painful. For them, full-blown wrath. Is this what this verse is teaching? So when you stand at Mount Sinai... And Moses says, God, you said we have found favor in your eyes. What was the basis for their favor? What obviously could not have been in anything about them, could it? And it's not in Ephesians either. Verse 4. But God being rich in mercy... Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. This is the gospel of grace all throughout the Bible. What Moses is aware of is that there's this unique thing between them as a people and God. That even though they are Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, and they are disqualified from being in a relationship with God because of the love of God, that which which is in God, it's going to be different for us. We find favor because of some reason in you that you give us favor. Right? You remember, we described this, Exodus 32, the outbreak of idolatry. Exodus 34, the ongoing grace of God with these people. Do you remember what happened in between these two? Exodus 33 happened in between these two, where we learned about the character of God. What rescued these people? Them changing? Them getting it together? No, what rescued them was the imposing of God's character on their situation. God imposed himself on their situation. And his mercy and his grace prevailed over what should have been his wrath upon their lives. And God's purpose continues. And that's exactly what we have. This is Ephesians 2 explaining Mount Sinai. But God, being rich in mercy, because of something inside of him that existed long before you and I ever came along or did anything, this great love with which he loved us, he made us alive. I'm just thinking how... 
many thoughts do I want to chase here? All right, I can't resist this. I can't, I can't resist this thought. Can you just back up with me just for a moment to Romans chapter 9? Those of you who have paper, you can do this. You can put one thumb in one location. Do this beautiful thing. All right, this, this is... Romans chapter 9 is the Apostle Paul explaining what appears to be a fly in the ointment of God's plan. It appears as though the nation of Israel who made all these, had these promises made to them at Mount Sinai, somehow God has fumbled and they have fallen outside of his purpose. It just, it looks that way. Moses, uh, Paul's having to explain that it's not that way. But I just want to pick up on a little piece of this because I, I want you to see that Before you and I took breath, the God of the universe was already at work with a plan that he intended to fulfill. That's what it means to be known by name. So in chapter 9, verse 11, God begins to explain how he has worked out his purpose. That God is insistent, although everybody is in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 through 3. And you understand what I mean by that? Everybody's in darkness. Everybody's dead. Everybody's under the sentence of the wrath of God. Everybody is. So if God looks out at humanity and says, there's hope that one day somebody in this group is going to turn to me. Does God have any hope that that's ever going to happen? No. Not from people who are in those conditions. But God will have mercy on whom he will have mercy. And he will make sure that mercy finds its place. He will bring grace into our lives. Even though Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 describes this. Verse 11 says, though, describing Jacob and Esau, it says, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him. Who calls because of him who imposes his character on broken humanity. That's why this is going to continue. And you keep reading this story. I'm just going to give you a highlight. Jump down to verse 25. As indeed he says in Hosea. Those who were not my people I will call my people. I will impose myself in their world. And her who was not beloved I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them. You are not my people. There they will be called sons of the living God. Do you understand that Ephesians 2 tells you you're not God's people? You are children of wrath. But God says, I refuse to let that be the final word. I will impose my character on their need. And that's what he does. And listen in verse 29. Isaiah speaks of this. As Isaiah predicted... If the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Do you you get what Isaiah is saying right here? If God had not done this, if this is not the way God had operated, everybody in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1 through 3 would have been like Sodom and Gomorrah. Do you remember the story of Sodom and Gomorrah? Everybody's wiped out. In Sodom and Gomorrah, when God brings judgment upon them, except for those that God chose to save out of there. 
If God hadn't done this, this is what the Bible clearly teaches. If God hadn't done it this way, everybody'd still be in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, in a condition of death and separation and hostility, doing my own thing, my own way, and not knowing God. This is not new with Paul. This is what Moses understood. This is why Moses prayed the way he did. He stood and said, God, my hope is not in these people. and It's not in me. My hope is that you are the way you are. And we have found favor in your sight. For some reason, God, you have chosen to set your mercy and your grace on us. And that's what Ephesians 2, 4 teaches. Look in verse 5. Go back to Ephesians. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ by grace. God not only reveals his character, but he imposes his life on us. By his grace, for reasons that are in him, God chooses to make us alive. So not only... Do I want to be aware that Ephesians 2 puts me in this condition of death? It displays the only way that life can come to me. God must make me alive. I I cannot self-will myself to life. I, I, I cannot pray enough to create life. I can't read enough to create life. I, I can't be determined enough to create life. I'm dead. If life shows up, it must come from somewhere else besides me. God makes me alive. And you and I experience this life. Keep reading. See, where are you in my, my graph here? And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ. For by grace you been saved through faith and this is not your own doing it is the gift of God why does all this stuff take place because it's a gift from God all right I noticed something here intentionally I put all this stuff up until we get to Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10 is sort of in the dark because it exists in an unseen dimension if you will It takes place without you and I seeing it. It's what God does in the spirit. So at some point, life comes to us and God is imposing his gracious character upon our lives. And all we can do is receive that by faith. So what have we done in this equation? Just receive what God has already determined to do. That's what's happened in this equation. But then something's going to happen in verse 10 that throws a wrench in everybody's understanding. It introduces this word works to you. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now notice Everything else except the works 
is an unseen reality. The works, however, are quite seen, aren't they? The works are the outworking of these things. The works are things that you do. The works are the stories that we tell. That I went from a pot-smoking, drinking teenager who heard the gospel to a never got drunk, never smoked weed, never did drugs ever again person. Right? So that's observable. That, that produced, hey, dude, you're not the guy I used to know. Hey, whatever happened to the fun, Keith? Uh, that was kind of the response of friends who saw works, right? They saw the impact of this. They saw us doing something different, saying different things. Jesus freak kind of language coming out of us and telling people about stuff religious-wise that we never talked about before. Now we're talking about it, right? That's works. But be careful. The works show up really late in the game, don't they? Be careful that you don't do this. Be careful that you don't take the works and put it at the bottom and somehow say, my works cause God to do all that he's done in my life. Because the moment you do that, you have an insecure, moody little relationship with God that's only as good as you are. And your works... Next week, when we glance into the Reformation, you're going to find a man named Martin Luther who wrestled with his works in the most miserable of ways. If you know anything about Martin Luther's story, he actually did what anybody and everybody ought to do. If you really think that your works are contributing toward your standing with God, you ought to be working a whole lot harder than you are. In reality, if you really believe that a little bit, we're just the laziest people in the planet. But Luther believed that and he worked it out in his life at a level that was, we would probably say, ridiculous, obsessive. It drove him to the point where he was so much wanting to please God that he turned at one point and said, love God, I hate him. Right, let me just flirt with a little reality here. Oh my gosh. Let me, just, let me just flirt with this little reality for a second. If, if anything that sounds like works to you in the Christian life sound, it feels to you like a whip that drives you, requires you, stands over you like a taskmaster, demands that you are a certain way, if that's what works feel like for you, your problem is with this understanding. You, you are theologically shipwrecked. And you have taken that which is most observable and you've made it the foundation of your relationship with God. And I understand how that happens because you see the work stuff a whole lot more than you see all this other stuff. All the other stuff, you're just going to have to take God at his word, right? Did anybody see any of this stuff? Did anybody actually, I mean, you've seen the depravity thing, but maybe you're one of those people that believe, well, you know, I'm like 99% depraved. There's a little bit of something good left in me. Isn't that what we all believe about humanity? Deep down inside, you know, oh, I know there's a few bad apples, but deep down inside, people are pretty good. All right, well, tell the Apostle Paul, he's a moron, and he has no idea what he's talking about in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 through 3. And, and, and if he were to go on Oprah, it would, it would be a nightmare. Because his view of humanity is quite different than the popular view of humanity. But 
if we have so paid attention to our works and you don't see some of this other stuff because it's received by faith, then every time you bump into something that sounds like you ought to read your Bible. How about this? Here, let me make this really living for you. I preached a a message last week on prayer, on intercessory prayer, on the calling of God for intercessory prayer. Last week, before the service, we had 20 people who came and joined us for intercessory prayer for the service. This week, we had 20 people who came and joined us for intercessory prayer before the service. So you hear an encouragement to pray, right? Do, Do you feel weighed down by that? Do you feel whipped by that? Do you feel driven by that because you didn't show up for prayer Sunday morning? And maybe it didn't even change your prayer life at all this week. And do you feel like, oh, here we go again. Now I got to pray and I got to show up at next generation, whatever the heck that thing is. And just, Man, there's just so much to do around this church. Good night. Listen, if you get driven by that, you're driven by something in you that theologically misunderstands the nature of God at work in you. And if you give me one more thing to do, if you give me just one more stinking thing to do to satisfy this God, you are going to drive me nuts. All right, so that's what I, you can sit in this church and feel that way, can't you? Rather than the understanding that by God's grace, I have come to life with a life I did not have right before that moment. There is a life in me that wants to stick itself out of me. It wants to do stuff. It wants to express itself in God-like ways. All kinds of descriptions could flood into my life. It wants to work itself out in my world. So do I see works as an expression of the life that has been given me by grace? Or do I see works as yet another thing God requires me to do so that he will be gracious to me? A lot more people misplace that understanding than you think. And you'll be able to tell about yourself. If works to you feel like something that just, oh, all right, I guess I got to do. I got to do. Rather than an expression of life, it's a theological shipwreck is what you're experiencing. All right, how am I doing here? All right, two quick things. Try to race through these last. Go back to Exodus. Back to Exodus. Exodus 33, verse 13. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you. God, show me yourself because I want to know you. This is the deepest thing in the heart of Moses. It needs to be the deepest thing in any God seeker. Remember this context. Moses just got offered a deal by God. Earlier in this chapter, Moses is offered this. Moses, the land of milk and honey, it's yours. Yes. The power to overcome all the enemies that are there, yours. I'm going to send an angel with you. You get to go into the land. This is going to be great. But remember, Moses hears, wait, wait, wait. Something's off the table. 
the, the presence of God going with us, being uniquely manifest to us as a people who belong to God, that wasn't mentioned, God. And if you're not doing that, we don't want that deal. If you are not going to be among us in this precious, unique, nearness way, you can just leave us right here where you are among us. And we'll forgo the land of milk and honey and all the other things that go with it. But don't, lend, don't send us from here if you're not going to go with us. This is an interesting thing. This is a man who looks into his future. As you and I look into our future, when we pray about stuff, right? There's a future that you want, that you'd like to have. What do I want the most in that future? Do I, do I want to know God at all costs? Or do I want a future that's safe, comfortable, not challenging, not confusing, not painful, extremely limited in suffering? Heck, I'm an American. I just like a little convenience, for goodness sake, right? I look into my future and say, God, could you, could you make the world a little more convenient for me? Moses stands and prays and says, God, as I look into the future, that there's one thing that overrules everything out. Whatever future you prepare for me, just make sure it lets me know you. That's what he prays right here. What's more important to me is that I know you. And this is what God was after at Mount Sinai. And what's interesting here, we've had all this fireworks and display and freaking you out and show of God on the mountain. Everything's rumbling and they're all like, hey, Moses, you talk to God. We don't need to talk to him. We're scared of him now. Whatever God has revealed, it leaves this man Moses saying, God, I'm, I'm not repelled by you. I'm drawn to you. I'm so drawn to you that whatever you just offered that has all that good stuff in it, you can keep it. I would rather have you. I would rather know you. So listen, whatever it is that you and I come to God sometimes and life has happened and we don't understand it and we take God to task and we question him, the the nearer we get to God, the more we know God, the more we want to know God. And that's what Moses experiences here. And that's also what he experienced, just like what Paul experienced when he says, you know, for the sake of knowing Christ, I have counted everything as loss in my life. everything else is on the table. The one thing that's not on the table for me is knowing God. That's what I learned as I gaze into this time at Mount Sinai. Henry Blackaby wrote a book called Experiencing God a number of years ago. and Just a very insightful reality of our own knowing of God. He says, God does not merely want you to read about him. He wants you to know him. When Jesus said eternal life is knowing God, God, he did not mean that eternal life is knowing about God. He was not referring to someone who has read many books and attended numerous seminars about God. He was talking about a first-hand experiential knowledge. We come to truly know God as we experience him in and around our lives. Many people have grown up attending church and hearing about God all their lives, but they do not have a personal, dynamic, growing relationship with God. They never hear his voice. They have no idea what God's will is. They do not encounter his love 
firsthand. They have no sense of divine purpose for their lives. They may know a lot about God, but they don't really know him. And this is the one thing Moses says, don't give me that, God. You've written some things down. There's, there's this tabernacle thing. There's this promised land. But, but God, I want to know you. I just don't want to know about you. I want to know you. This is the heart of one seeking after God. Look in verse 14. It's the last thought. He said, my presence will go with you. And I will give you rest. And he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. How shall it be known that I found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it, is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do. God sends his presence with him. All right, my, my opinion, I've shared this a couple of times as we've gone through Exodus. My opinion is that Exodus chapter 25 verse 8 sits as the reason why these people are summoned to Mount Sinai. The reason why you and I have the book of Exodus. It wasn't just so that we could get the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments were a part of something else that God was doing. He was building a tabernacle in order to restore his presence to humanity. That's what God was after. When you get to here in Exodus chapter 33, what you hear in Moses is that point now has become non-negotiable. And he refuses to go back to the way it once was. The patriarchs didn't have this. They had something. God was doing something with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. They didn't have the tabernacle. They didn't have a permanent arrangement for God to dwell among his people. He just randomly showed up in their lives. This was an ordered arrangement by God that he would be in the midst of his people in a recognized way. This is the heart of God. And and Moses stands in some ways in a way that I think you and I need to learn from him. Moses looks at what he's experienced in the tabernacle. He looks back at the patriarchs and he says, God, we don't want that anymore. We, we have seen that there's more. And we don't want that anymore. So if you're not going to be manifest among us in the ways in which the tabernacle displays that you would, we'll just stay right here. See, there, there's something about the manifest presence of God that needs to enamor us, control us, be the issue of our lives. So if, if you and I were just to survey our own experiencing, because the manifest presence of God is experiential. It is something that touches our lives in real living ways. So are, are you okay with what you're experiencing in that category? Are you good with that? I I, I tend to feel like my experience falls far short of where I want it to be. 
I know that there is more for me to experience in God than what I am experiencing now. And I, I, I want more of that. I want a dissatisfaction. I want to stand before God like Moses and say, God, don't give me that deal anymore. I don't want that old deal anymore. I, I don't want just mental conceptual thoughts that you said something, you did something in people's past a long time ago and I'm holding on to that. Well, that's, that's good. I'm not saying that you shouldn't do that. But I'm also aware there's more. Because you and I, and we will pick this up in the next study that we would do, which I'm not going to tell you what that is, but after we do this little series, we're going to do another study that takes us into the next update of this plan. God installed himself amongst his people in the tabernacle, but there came another day called Pentecost where God installed himself in a new way in the midst and the lives of his people that you and I, if we stand like Moses now and we pray, we would say, God, don't give me that. Whatever Moses got at the tabernacle that he fought so hard to have, I don't want that. I want this from now on. And I don't want any less than that. And don't send us forward without that in our lives. You know, and when you pray that back to God, I think it pleases God. Because it shows you and I are fighting for the things that he has said are valuable. Which is all Moses was doing. I'll give you this closing thought from A.W. Tozer. I should say Tozer. It says Tower in your quote there. Eric, go ahead and come back up here. It says, God created man expressly for the use of his pleasure and fellowship. Nothing in or of this world measures up to the simple pleasure of experiencing the presence of God. Doesn't my soul need to stare at that sentence longer and be convinced of it? Nothing in or of this world measures up to the simple pleasure of experiencing the presence of God. The spirit of restlessness breaking across the sea of humanity testifies to this truth. Our whole purpose as created beings is to utilize our time delighting in the manifest presence of our creator. This presence is both intangible and indescribable. Some things rise above explanation and human understanding and this is one. Many Christians are filled with good information but only a few mercy drops fall into their languid soul to satisfy the thirst for God's presence. Too many have never burst into the dazzling sunlight of God's conscious manifest presence. Or if they perchance have, it is a rare experience and not a continuous delight. There was something God was after in this book of Exodus. If you walk away from Exodus with the idea that God wanted to make sure he laid down his rules and you and I kept them. If that's what you walk away with Exodus, I hope that if that's what you started your study of Exodus with, that that has been fixed. Because what a sad thought that would be to have studied this book, to get to its end, and to have missed. These people are brought near to God so that God could install himself amongst them 
and dwell in their midst. And that passion for God has not changed. The way he does it has changed. But that passion for God to dwell in our midst has not changed. And you and I have spent a lot of time. I started to calculate the hours you and I have spent together. The other pastors have spent together studying the book of Exodus. I chose not to do it. But there's something to be taken from our time in Exodus. And I hope what it does for each of us is it, is it stirs us the way it stirred Moses. Moses just got around God and this passion in God stirred him. God, you said, you said this, God. This is what you want. And I want what you want. And I refuse to let you give me anything else but what you want, God. And I want more of that in me. And I hope you do too. Let's stand up together. so you want to be among us it would be foolish for us to ask do you know what you're getting yourself into or you know what we're made of there is corruption dwelling in our members there are cravings dwelling in our hearts and Lord in our best moments we are aware that our worst moments might just be day after tomorrow and Lord if for a moment our nearness and our relationship and our covenant with you was based in us we would be a most helpless people this morning with no hope but God that's not the basis of who you will be to us you refused that the only storyline of humanity would be Sodom and Gomorrah God you refused that For reasons beyond us, your grace has come to us and we have found favor in your sight. What kind of God are you that loves like that? That looks upon weakness, waywardness, rebellion, runs toward us that sees a day that if we ever were going 
to no longer be children of wrath, someone would have to drink that cup of wrath for us. And you arrange for your son to do just that. What kind of a God are you? are both a God who terrifies and a God who enamors all at the same time. You are a God who makes the earth shake and makes us puzzled and everything in us says back away but we can't get but one step without our hearts saying no, draw near to him. We have learned much by what you revealed at Mount Sinai. But Lord, we don't just want a people who, people who know something about you. We want to know you. So God, we, we're standing together this morning with hearts that have been awakened and made aware of what you're like and what your great purpose is in our midst. And Lord, we gaze into the future. The future that we have as individuals. The future that we have as families. The future that we have as a church together. Lord, we gaze into that future. We say, God, whatever you're going to do in the future, let it reveal you to us. Make us to know you. Lord, if all that we know right now is all that we're going to know, then go ahead and take us from here to be with you. But in the days ahead, Lord, if there's more and you're going to be at work, Lord, arrange the days ahead that we might know you. God, that's our desire. Knowing what we have known has made us want to know you more. So like Moses, Lord, we stand and we pray. Lord, show us your glory. May the future that we have as a people be full of one moment after another of the glory of God revealed in our midst. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.